Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sheila Zielinski Show for this December 8th, 2017 edition. I wanted to have John Terrell back on the program, and I want to jump right into it because it's going to be a lot of information to cover. Grab your Bible. Grab your notebooks. You have to take notes on this. So much information. And I'm entitling today what every Christian needs to know about Israel. John's going to cover a lot of information. So like I said, grab your notebooks. And let's get into it. John, I'm going to hand you the mic. Get into this, sir. Well, thank you very much, Sheila, and uh, praise the Lord. And I'm going to start by talking about the covenants. Now, in our world today, whatever you do, we are governed by laws. For example, um, in order for you to hold property, you have to have a deed that is recorded at the county recorder's office. And if you have a car, that is also recorded. You're the legal owner. you got a pink slip, what we call here in America. If you don't pay it in cash, then, of course, the bank holds the title to it, and you drive the car, and you get the title when the car is paid off. So what I want to do today is this. Using the Bible and not putting in any of my own personal input, but simply finding out what kind of laws did God create or did he give to mankind and what kind of covenants did he give with people particularly israel and i want to start out with the first law most people have never thought about this but god actually gave a set of laws from the beginning when adam and Eve were created there was a set of laws and Let me read to you these laws, and then we're going to read the scriptures. In this law, number one, they were to be fruitful, have children, and repopulate the earth. The second thing, they were to subdue the earth. This means they were to develop the resources God had deposited upon the earth and develop civilization so that mankind could live and work in harmony. And God simply put down the oil, he put down the coal, he put down the metals inside the earth for us to use. And so God delights in when people build cities, highways, develop it. And so environmentalists have not understood what God said he wanted the earth to be developed. Thirdly, they were to have dominion over nature to make sure that the environment in which the animals, birds, and fish live were not damaged. So we are not to damage things, but we are to develop it. And fourthly, they were to be vegetarians. Very interesting. In the first law, that God gave to Adam and Eve, he said, you are to be vegetarians. And then fifthly, the last law is called the law of death. And they were not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So let me read to you right now, Genesis chapter 1, verse number 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful, and multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I give unto you every herb-bearing seed, 
which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is a fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. And I'm reading, by the way, in the King James Version. And when you find the word meat in King James Version, it can mean flesh, it can also mean bread, food. The animals did not kill one another. No one was eating anyone except they were eating grass, herbs, and fruit for the trees. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And then in Genesis 2:16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in that day that you eat of, you shall surely die. Most of us, as Christians, have kind of just don't think too much about these laws. But these were the laws given. So man has always been under the law. God simply said, I'm going to govern you, and this is what you do, and this is what you do not do. The fifth one, the law of death, not only applied to Adam and Eve, but is applied to their offspring. And from this day, when they fell into sin, you and I had been under the law of death. The law of death cannot be satisfied by you and me. There is nothing we can do. We are condemned to die, and we are condemned to the lake of fire. Every baby born immediately is born condemned to death. This law, which was given to Adam and Eve, still stands today. And so this is a hopeless situation if you think about it. There's nothing we as humans can do about it. And the only one that could set aside the law of death, commute our sentence, was and is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He's the only one. But if the, he does not save you, you are sentenced to death, the second death, the lake of fire. Let's move now. 1,676 years, and we have now come up to after the flood. The life between Adam and Eve and to the flood was a long period, 1,676 years that Satan reigned on earth. You had angels having sex with women, fallen ones, the Nephilims. It was an awful time. God sent the flood. And then God simply revised his first set of laws. And I'm going to take you to Genesis chapter 9. That's Genesis, the ninth chapter. We're going to start in verse number 2 and read it through 3. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moves upon the earth, and upon all fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be meat for you, even as a green herb have I given you all things. Now, God simply now changed his law of us being vegetarians. And in the revision now, he said, you can eat flesh of animals. So with other words, where you have churches that are simply saying we've got to be vegetarians, they do not really know what they're talking about. Yes, we started out as vegetarians, but it was changed after the flood. Now, if you take a good attorney that is uh, defending somebody 
for a crime, that attorney would simply say, I'm going to go and look for the original law. Had there been any revisions? Uh, do we have any case history? If there was an original law and years later there was a revision, a good lawyer would pick that up and he would simply say, well, this is originally what the law said, but it was changed in year, whatever year it was, and so we're going to go by the revision. So we now have to go by the revision of the first law given. This is not a revision, but this is an add-on. He simply said, you cannot eat blood. That came long before God gave Moses the law. So this is for the revision now, and verse number four. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. And then the third thing in this revision, any person who committed murder was to be executed, and any animal that killed a human being was also to be put to death. Verses five and six. And surely your blood of your life will have required, at the hand of every beast will have required it, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will have required life of man. Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So let's just quickly summarize now. We had the first law, and now 1,676 years later, we had a revision, no longer mandated to be vegetarians. That's a revision. Add-on, cannot eat blood or drink blood. And thirdly, any person that takes another person's life shall be executed. Those were the laws that God had from the time of Adam and then also here from the time of Noah. Now, what about the covenant laws? There were several covenants between God and mankind prior to Moses. There are a number of covenants, and we're going to look upon them here because it's important that we understand that. So if we turn to Genesis chapter 9, where we are right now, the first covenant that God made with man was a covenant with Noah. And we read from Genesis 9, verse number 8, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark, to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a token of the covenant which I made between me and you, and every living creature that is in you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud. It shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. The rainbow. Now, God made a covenant with Noah and with his offspring, which is you and I, and said this, I will never again flood the entire earth and kill everybody. I'll make a covenant, Noah. It will not happen again. As a token, I have the rainbow. When you see the rainbow, remember my covenant with you that I will not flood the earth again. Now, the homosexuals have stolen the rainbow and they have made it into their symbol, which is the desecration of the first covenant that God made with man when he made it with Noah. The second covenant was between God and Abraham. Let's turn up to Genesis chapter 15. 
That's Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to read a few verses down here from verse 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, Lord God, what would you give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold to me, you have given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This shall not be your heir, but he shall come forth out of your own bow, it shall be your heir. And he brought forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall your seed be. And he believed in the Lord, he counted for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought you out of your, out of the Chaldees, to give you this land to inherit it. And then in the same chapter, we go down to verse number 18. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto your seed have I given this land. For the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. He describes the people living in there. So let me go back and read this. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto your seed have I given this land. From the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. This was a land covenant. This had nothing to do with atonement, paying of sins. This was a land covenant. Now, this covenant was reconfirmed to Isaac. And we turn to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. And there was a famine in the land, beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell you of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you. For unto you and your seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham your father. Now, Another land covenant. So this was made now with Isaac, where God simply said this, this is what I will do. I confirm my covenant. My covenant with Abraham has now been transferred to you, Isaac. Then if we go to Genesis chapter 35, we are now going to find the covenant being confirmed to Jacob. That's Genesis chapter 35. And we pick it up here in verse number 9. And God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob. And Jacob, by the way, means swindler. But Israel, which means a prince of God, shall be your name. And he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful multiply a nation and company of nations shall be of you and kings shall come out of your loins and the land which i gave abraham and isaac to you i will give it and to your seed after you will i give the land so now we have a land covenant that was given to three men to abraham isaac and jacob when moses was called to lead the people out of egypt 
God began to give Moses new laws that he wanted the children of Israel to obey. Most of them dealt with everyday life, sacrifices, and the setup of the tabernacle. But God also gave Moses and the people a universal law that was to govern all mankind and became known as the Ten Commandments. And you find that in Exodus chapter 20, verse number 1 through 17. So to the seed of man, we had the first law given to Adam and Eve. The revision given to Noah. And now, 920 years after Noah, God again revised his laws. And they started out with the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments have no salvation in them. There's no atonement. The laws that God gave Adam, Noah, and Moses is simply to govern our lives on this earth. But let me now get to the covenant between God and Israel. As the aforementioned covenants were made between God and individuals, it was in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt that God made a covenant with the people of Israel. This is referred to as the first covenant. And let me stop now and really try to emphasize this. Abraham had a covenant with God, but that's not the first covenant. Isaac had a covenant with God, but that's not the first covenant. Jacob had a covenant with God, but that's not the first covenant. This covenant took place 920 years after Noah. And let's turn to Exodus chapter 24. And I'm going to pick it up here in verse number one. And he, that's God, said to Moses, come up unto the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and seven to the elders of Israel, and worship you afore of. And Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall your people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, rose up early in the morning, and built an altar under the hill, and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel with offered burnt offerings, and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, Half of the blood is sprinkled on the altar, and he took the book of the covenant, read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you, concerning all these words. This covenant now was not between God and Moses. It was between God and the people of Israel. This is the first covenant. When you read the book of Hebrews, you talk about the first or the second covenant. The first covenant is this covenant, when God simply made a covenant with the people of Israel and himself. Now, this covenant consisted of two parts. First, we had the atonement. Now, God had promised Adam and Eve that a Savior would come. You find in Genesis 3.15. Now, if you have read the book of Enoch, Enoch had two books. If you've read them, it's fantastic. Now, Enoch lived about 700 years after Adam. And Enoch 
The Bible says was taken up and into heaven and came back. He later was translated. But Enoch is the first one to preach the gospel. And you'll find in the book of Enoch that he refers to the son of man. Now, for years, I've been walking with the Lord now since 1967. And I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so on. And I read there, you know, Jesus referred himself to the son of man. And I said, okay, son of man, what does that mean? I couldn't figure it out. Where did that title come from? That title was given to Enoch by God, the son of man. And if you read in the book of Enoch, it talks about salvation. It talks about Jesus coming. And it gives a whole lot of description. And Job was a contemporary of Abraham. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan or Palestine. Job lived on the other side, which today would be called Jordan. And Job and Abraham had not met. They were not collaborating. But Job had a complete understanding of the Messiah. Let me read to you here from Job chapter 19. Very interesting. That's the book of Job. We're going to turn to chapter 19, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 23. All of my words were not written, all they were printed in the book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. After my skin, worms destroyed his body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Job knew that the end, there will be a resurrection. And he said this, Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, do my reins be consumed within me. So we have Job now saying, there is a Messiah coming. Now, the Passover began in Egypt, and the people were told to keep that tradition from year to year. And you find that in Exodus chapter 12, verses 2 through 27. Now, I'm not going to read that, but I'm going to describe the Passover to you. The Passover was a part of the atonement. Jesus speaking to Moses, and he simply said, you take a lamb, every family take a lamb. It's going to be blameless. You slaughter it, and on a certain day you shall eat it. And after you slaughter the lamb, you take the blood and you strike it on the doorpost, on, the, on your door, and that will be a token. That will be a sign. When the angel of death comes, he will see the blood and he will pass over. He will pass you and he will not kill. Now, that was to be kept year after year until the Messiah came. This is part of the first covenant. The next thing I want to share with you is the high priest was to enter the holiest of holy in a tabernacle once a year and offer sacrifice for himself and the people. If you turn on to Exodus chapter 30, that's the book of Exodus, and we're going to go to chapter number 30, and I'm going to pick it up in verse number 10. And we read this. And Edward shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year. And the blood of the sin offering of atonement once in a year shall he make an atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is the most holy unto the Lord. Now, once a year, this is called Yom Kippur. The high priest was to go in to the holy of holy and sacrifice for the sins of the people for one year that has passed. So, we got two events. 
The Passover, which takes place in April, May, and the Yom Kippur, which is in September. Two days that simply has to do with the first covenant. And they were doing this continually. Before I summarize it now, let's talk about the land covenant. And to do that, we turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And this is where uh, some people that are Christians are not really understanding. God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the land of Canaan would be the homeland of their descendants. But this covenant was conditional and it had to depend upon the behavior of the people. If they turned away from God's laws and lived in sin, God would then cast them out from the land. Listen closely now. The blood covenant, the atonement, was kept year after year. But God told the people of Israel, the land is yours as long as you obey. If you stop obeying, I will kick you out of the land. Let's read that now. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 28, and we read verse number 15. But it shall come to pass, if you will not hearken to the voice of the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And if you talk about a curse list, this is the worst one that we have. But I'm going to turn to verse number 60 right now. God said this. Moreover, he will bring upon you all the diseases of Egypt, which you were afraid of, and they shall cleave unto you. Now, Jewish people have a peculiar thing that other people do not have. They have a disease that is confined to within the Jewish people. That disease, they know about it. There's no cure for it. And this is something they've been struggling with for centuries. And God said that's part of the curse. Also, every sickness and every plague, which is not written in the book of the law, then will the Lord bring upon you until you be destroyed. You shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of heaven for multitude, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. To come to pass that the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught, and you shall be plucked off the land which you go to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter you among all people from the one end of the earth even unto the other, and there you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers had known, even wood and stone. And among these nations, Shall you find no ease, neither shall the sole of your foot have rest. But the Lord shall give you a trembling heart, and failing of eyes, and sorrow of mind. And your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you shall fear day and night, and shall have none assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, Would God it were even? Even you shall say, Would God it were morning? For the fear of your heart, wherein you shall fear, and for the sight of your eyes, which you shall see. And the Lord shall bring you into Egypt again with ships. By the way where I speak unto you, you shall see it no more again. And there you shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. Now, this is a strong statement that God gave through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And the question then is this. Has this been fulfilled? And the answer is yes. 
the land covenant is no longer in force. The ten northern tribes lost their land and capital Samaria in 721 BC to the Assyrians. If you read in Chronicles, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and so on, you find that the ten northern tribes were taken by the Assyrians and they were removed out of the land and scattered in other parts of the Assyrian Empire and the land was taken over by Assyria. Some of the descendants of the ten northern tribes came back and they became known as Samaritans and the Jews hated them. So at the time of Christ, you had Galilee in the north, which was populated by Jews. You had Samaria in the middle, populated by Samaritans. And the Samaritan, the reason they hated them was that when the ten northern tribes were scattered, they started to intermarry. So they were a mixed race. They were not pure. And that's why the Jews hated them. And you read in, in the gospel, you, you know, they didn't like the Samaritans. In the south, where you had Jerusalem and Judah, that's where the Jews lived. That's the time of Christ. That's how it was developed at that time. Now, the Jews lost their land in 587 B.C. to the Babylonians, and we had the Babylonian captivity. 721, the northern part was taken away. 687, the southern part was taken away, and the kingdom of Israel ceased to exist. The kingdom of Israel. I got to interject something here. We have the kingdom of God, which is spiritual. We have the kingdom of Satan, which is spiritual. And we have the kingdom of Israel, which is a physical kingdom. More in a few moments here. After 70 years of captivity in Babylon, King Cyrus decreed that the Jews who wanted to return to Judea and Jerusalem could do so. There were more than one million Jews living in Babylon and Persia, but only 42,360 Jews, men, took advantage of this offer. And I want to read that to you because I think it's important because many of you have never heard of this. Ezra chapter 2, if you read from verse number 64. The whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score, besides their servants, their maids, of whom there were 7,330 and seven, and there were among them 200 singing men and singing women. Now, God allowed Jews to return, but he never told them to have an independent country. They were allowed to live in the land, but God never commissioned them to rule the land. They were allowed to live there. 42,360 Jewish men came back, and the rest of them stayed in Babylon. The Jews never regained political control over the promised land. It was hoped that the Messiah would remove all foreigners and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. I'm sure that you recall in the Gospels, where it says that men came to try to force Jesus to be the Messiah. So in order for you to understand the Messiah concept from a Jewish viewpoint, the Jews felt that the Messiah would be a political leader, a military leader. He would simply come in, clean out the Romans, establish the kingdom of Israel, and conquer all the nations in the world and rule out of Jerusalem, and the Jews would rule with him over all nations. 
That's the mindset of the Jews at the time of Christ. That's the mindset of the Kabbalistic Jews today. The same mindset. And that's what Jesus said when Pilate said, Are you the king of the Jews? He said, My kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is in each one of us. His kingdom is spiritual. If we turn now to the book of Acts, chapter 1. That's the book of Acts, chapter 1. Even the apostles still could not get over. When is he going to establish the kingdom of Israel? And I'm going to read to you here from Acts 1, 6-7. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Most of you don't have history background, but the Jews have rebelled four times. The first time was the Maccabean Revolt. And that's where we got the Hanukkah from, the Hanukkah holiday they have. And the Maccabeans were able for a short time to control Jerusalem and hold the land until they were defeated. And then we had revolts in 70 AD. We had a revolt about 50, 60 years later. And when a Jew simply tried to, with force, kick out the Romans and established the kingdom of Israel. And every time they did, they were defeated. And history tells us that every time they were defeated, men and women were taken as slaves and sold into all of the Roman Empire, in the entire Roman Empire. The last revolt by Bar Kokka, which was about 120 AD, the Roman Empire said, I'm tired of these Jews. Once and for all, I'm going to clean out the land. And they cleaned out the land. Every man and woman of younger age, 35 and down, were sold as slaves, taken to Egypt in ships, and then shipped all over the Roman Empire and sold as slaves. The rest of them were killed or driven away. And after 150 AD, there were only a very few Jewish people left in the land. They tried hard to establish the kingdom of Israel, and they couldn't do it because, you see, it can only be done by Jesus. The first covenant does not exist anymore. It came to an end at the moment Jesus died on the cross and will never be revived again. Any Jews trying to keep it alive are laboring in vain. Let me quickly turn here to Hebrews chapter 8. That's the book of Hebrews chapter 8. And I want to pick it up in verse number 6. But now he, that is Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he's the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and I regard them not, says the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to be a people. 
They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins, and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he says, A new covenant he has made the first old. Now that with the case of waxes old is ready to vanish away. The land covenant that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had, and the people of Israel under the first covenant, does not exist anymore. It has been replaced. The second covenant came 4,149 years after Adam. As we read the New Testament, it is very important that you understand that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ was not a Gentile church. It was a Jewish church. It was a church for Israel, the 12 tribes. Jesus' mother was of the tribe of Judah. She gave Jesus a body of flesh and bones. Jesus was in the lineage of King David, the tribe of Judah. All the apostles were Jewish, except Paul, who was in the tribe of Benjamin. The first people got saved, the 3,000 people that got saved in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost were not Gentiles. They were Jewish people. God's second covenant, as we read here in Hebrews, was made between God and Jesus Christ to replace the first covenant and bring the people of Israel into the second covenant. It was not made for the Gentiles. The Gentiles are grafted in. We have been added in. But the second covenant was for the people of Israel. Let me take you right now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, the Jews today and the Jews at the time of Christ, they tried to reject the second covenant. They reject Jesus. They call it Christians. They call it for Gentiles. It is not for them. If they have known the Old Testament, if they read the New Testament, they will find that this was for them, and they rejected it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read this from verse number 18. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, the first covenant was between God the Father and the people of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. The people could not keep their part, and the first covenant was done away with. The second covenant is between God the Father and God the Son. It cannot be broken. It is ironclad, and thus we can trust and know that the second covenant will last not only on this earth, but through eternity. Because through eternity, we're going to be in heaven under the first covenant that will never, never change. Jesus is the only way to this covenant. And I'm going to wrap this up here quickly. In John chapter 14, verse number 6, we read this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. You had to come under the second covenant through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Jesus said the following. 
Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I said unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I said unto you, Except a man be born of water, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice now, not the kingdom of Israel, but the kingdom of God. That's the second covenant. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said to you, you must be born again. So let me quickly wrap this up and summarize this. The first covenant does not exist anymore. The land covenants that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do not exist anymore. They do not exist. Jewish people have no legal right to the land that they have claimed. Jesus has said, he spoke through the prophet Ezekiel. He said, I will restore Israel, the physical Israel. When is it going to be restored? In the thousand-year kingdom. We do know that Jesus is our Lord and Savior as Christians. But Jesus was also the Jewish Messiah. And matter of fact, if we turn very quickly here to the Gospel of John, and I'm going to be picking it up in the first chapter, it's John chapter 1, and I'm going to read here from verse <clears throat> number 1. In the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then we go down here. To verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. It is very important, you understand, that Jesus came, first of all, to the people of Israel, which today is known as the Jewish people. During his time here, three and a half years when he was preaching, he basically preached to the Jewish people. He did meet a few Gentiles, but the Gentiles were not grafted in until after the day of Pentecost, when the apostle was told to go out and minister to the whole world and bring them in. So it is important that Jesus is not a Gentile Messiah. He is a Jewish Messiah, and he came to take care of the first covenant and issue a second covenant for his people. And we are grafted in. The second thing is that the Antichrist is going to be a Jewish Antichrist. He's not going to be a Gentile. He's going to be Jewish. And he's going to try to fulfill every prophecy spoken in the Old Testament. To try to simply say, I am the real deal. I am the Messiah of Israel. Understanding that. We now have in the book of Revelation, we talks about the Antichrist, the world government, and the reign of the Antichrist. So we do know that that is coming. If you now read in the Kabbalah, and by the way, the Kabbalah is 550 books. There's a lot of fluff Kabbalah, which you have in Hollywood with the stars and movie stars and so on. But the real deep Kabbalah teaching 
is that they are waiting for their Messiah, which they call the Holy Serpent, that they're going to bring up out of the abyss. So what I want to do now is I want to start 170 years before Christ and show you the attempts that the Kabbalistic Jewish leadership have done over the years to establish the state of Israel or the kingdom of Israel will be a better term. And the first attempt, this is after now they have been thrown out of the land, then the Babylonian captivity, and God had told them, you lost the land, you are in sin, and you will not get the land back until the Messiah comes. So when Jesus came, even the apostles believed this. They believed that Jesus at that time would establish the kingdom of Israel. From the book of Acts chapter 1, they asked him, when are you going to establish the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons. He simply said, I'm not going to tell you that now. But the concept of the apostles was that Jesus would come and not only be saving us from our sins, but also establish the kingdom of Israel, which did not take place. This will be fulfilled in a thousand-year kingdom. Now, the Kabbalistic Jews have simply decided that they are going to help themselves. And in 167 B.C. to 135 B.C., we had what is called the Maccabean Revolt. This is when the Jews, they were very powerful. They revolted and they drove out the Romans. They were able to get a hold of Jerusalem. They were able to reestablish the temple, to cleanse the temple. And for a few years, they had a state of Israel or a kingdom of Israel. They didn't have a king. And then they were defeated. Now, Hanukkah, the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, dates back to the Maccabean revolt of the temporary victory that they had. And this is Hanukkah, where they light the candles, and I think it's a seven-day holiday. That dates back to the revolt by the Maccabeans in 167 B.C. The second uprising took place between the years 66 and 70 A.D., after Jesus had been here. The Jews in Jerusalem and in Judea decided that they had enough, they were strong enough, and matter of fact, what they did was they simply took control of Jerusalem, and it was about five to 6,000 Roman soldiers that were part of the garrison in Jerusalem. So they realized we cannot fight, we are outnumbered. They surrendered, and they were told, if you surrender, we will let you go. When they surrendered, they were massacred, just wiped out, killed on the spot. No weapons, they just jumped on them and wiped them out. And of course, that's made the Romans furious. At this point, I'm going to stop for a moment here and say this. Where do I get my information from? This is something that I think that every Christian should have in order to understand Jewish history and the Antichrist. I have a book called History of the Jews. It was written by Solomon Graysel, G-R-A-Y-Z-E-L, and it is the textbook used in the synagogues. It was used in the 1950s. I don't know if they're using it now or if they come in with something else. But anyway, this book is a very good textbook. It's very factual, and you cannot buy it new. 
but I do know this, that on the internet, you can get a used copy of this book, A History of the Jews by Solomon Grayson. Matter of fact, he was a rabbi. And I got this book in uh, 1969 when I was at the seminary, and I moved a Jewish rabbi's belongings. He had died. His son contacted the seminary and asked if it was a student that could help him to move his stuff up to Lake Tahoe. And so me and all the guys, we got the job. And when we went down there, the son said, I'm not interested in the guy's books. You can have all the books you want. He had a big library. Most of the books I turned over, they went Hebrew. I turned them over to the seminary for their collection. But I did keep this book, A History of the Jews. At that time, I didn't think how valuable that would be. But that is where I get my information from. So when I'm getting information, I get it from Jewish sources. If I speak about the Jews, I get it from Jewish sources, not from Gentile sources. So the uprising in, in Judah between 66 and 70 AD was a disaster. Now, Jesus had predicted this. If you remember, Jesus spoke and said, you know, we talked about the temple. He said, it should not be one stone left upon another stone. And he said, when you see the abominations stand here, then flee. And the Christians in Jerusalem, and if you remember now, the book of Acts, 3,000 people got saved the first day after Pentecost, and then thousands of more. So we had about 25,000 Christians in Jerusalem after the apostles had been working there. When the Roman armies came back in 66, actually they came back about 67 AD. What the Christians did was they fled out of Jerusalem and not one Christian Jew was killed. But when the Romans took Jerusalem in 70 AD, they destroyed the temple. In those days they had no dynamite. So what they did was they brought in a lot of wood and they heated up the walls of the temple. And once they were really hot, they threw cold water on it. And that's how they cracked the walls. And then they tore it down. They worked about three years. And the only thing left is the temple mound and what is called today the Wailing Wall that we have left of that original temple. Now, all Jews got killed. And it was a slaughter. You would think that the Jews would say, Kabbalistic Jews would say, okay, it ain't working. This is the second attempt. The third attempt took place in 115 to 117 AD by Jews outside Judea. You remember now, there was about a million Jews living in Babylon. A million Jews were living in what is called Cyrene, which was the northern part of Egypt. And there were Jews living in Turkey. There were Jews living in Greece and so on. And the Jews, what they called in the diaspora, or the Jews outside of Israel, made a revolt for two years, trying to overthrow the Roman government. And of course, in 117, they were crushed. And again, a blood massacre, incredible, as the Romans put them down, brutally. The last revolt that was done was in Jerusalem. It started 132 A.D. and lasted for two years, actually three years to 135. This is when you had Bar Kukka, Jewish leader, and he had at his disposal close to one million Jewish soldiers. He had got an army of one million Jewish soldiers. And they were for a season able to drive out the Romans and to take control. They held the land for about three years. And after three years, the Romans came back with their legions 
and they massacred. According to Jewish historical facts, 580,000 Jewish soldiers were killed. This time, the Romans said, we're going to deal with the Jews once and for all. That's enough of the rebellion. And they simply took just about every Jew that was left in Judea was scattered into the Roman Empire. They just, they just threw them out of the land. They destroyed again everything they had built. They tried to rebuild the temple. And the young men and women, and we're talking here about millions of them, are Jews, were taken down to Egypt, loaded on ships, and sent all over the Roman Empire and sold as slaves. It was a massacre. Now, this broke the people that were in the Kabbalah. They realized this, that we cannot do it. We have to wait for a lot of time. The next person that I want to bring up is Rabbi Isaac Luria. And he lived from 1534 to 1572. He has been written what is called the Lurianic Kabbalah, which is actually a very bad, evil part of the Kabbalah of the teachings, which was picked up later by Jacob Franks and others. And that's a Kabbalah that is that world leadership is using that today. Now, Luria had gone back to the land of Israel. He actually, he lived up in Galilee. And he found that there was a village there called Safed, as spelled S-A-F-E-D, Safed. And if you looked it up today on the internet, you will find that that is the Kabbalistic center of the world. It is not in Jerusalem, but it's in the village of Safed. That's where Isaac Luria was. Now, he died in 1572, and the next Kabbalistic leader that came on the scene was Sabbatai Zevi, and he lived from 1626 to 1676. Now, Sabbatai was a little bit different from Luria. He simply said, I am the Jewish Messiah. There was another rabbi there, Nathan of Gaza, and Nathan of Gaza became his prophet. Sabbatai began to preach, and he had the gift of healing. People, when they were prayed for, they were slain. They were simply knocked down. And uh, Nathan of Gaza had the same power. So the Jewish people that were a remnant had not come back to Jerusalem and up in Safer. They simply said, this is the Messiah. And so letters were sent to all Jewish population centers. We had them up in Spain. We had them up in France. We got them in Germany. We got them in Poland. We got them in Russia at that time. And they were simply said, you know, the Messiah has come. He is right now in the land of Israel. And at that time, most Jews that lived during this time believed that Sabbatai Sebai was the Messiah. And they simply said the Messiah has come. In 1666, now the Kabbalistic number is 666, which you find in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, is the number of the Kabbalistic holy name, and it was attributed to King Solomon. King Solomon was known as 666, that was his Kabbalistic number, and you find it also in 1 Kings chapter 10. So Sabbatai decided he was the Messiah. This is the time of the Ottoman Empire. After a while, he traveled up to where the uh, Turkish leadership was, the uh, Sultan, that is called S-U-L-T-A-N. 
And he proclaimed himself and said, I am the Messiah. It's time for you to abdicate and give me the power. I am the Messiah. Well, he was arrested, and in time he was threatened, and he converted to Islam. He simply spit on his hat and everything else he had and said, you know, I'm now a Muslim. Now, when this word got out, his followers were absolutely horrified. And they said, you know, all hope is gone. Well, here comes Nathan from Gaza, the prophet, and said, look, Sabbatai has committed the worst sin there is. And when he did that, he paid for all the sins of the Jewish people. Believe on him and you will be saved. He had to go into the abyss, pay for the sins of the Jewish people, and now we can be saved because Sabbatai has paid the price. Eventually, Sabbatai was set free, ended up in Greece, and up in the Balkan countries where he died an obscure death. Then we had Jacob Frank. Jacob Frank was a Jewish rabbi from Poland at that time. The country between Poland and Ukraine was going back and forth. They say he's born in Ukraine, but at that time he was born in Poland. So he kept on the scene, and what he said was this. He lived from 1726 to 1791, and he said this. I am Sabbatai Sevi. I have been reincarnated, and I am known now as Jacob Frank. Jacob Frank had a terrible Kabbalistic teaching destruction, overthrow of everything, death to all the infidels, and Jews only were to reign. Now, the religion he had, there's a lot of people today in Judaism that are Frankists, but they do not really want to say that openly because it has a bad stigma. At the same time that Jacob Frank lived now, we had the Rothschilds. So we had Emmer Amschel, the first Rothschild, the founder of the Rothschild family, And then we also had the founder of the Illuminati, Adam Weishaupt. And it is interesting that they lived around Frankfurt am Main in Germany. That's in Western Germany. Matter of fact, Jacob Frank, he lived in Offenbach. And these three men lived very close to one another. They worked together and they were chosen by the Jewish Kabbalistic leadership to begin hard to develop a system where they could take over the world. The Rothschilds were to take over the banking system, and Adam Weishaupt was to take over the political system, and Jacob Frank was to make sure that the Kabbalistic system that he had developed after Isaac Luria and Sabbatai Sevi was followed by new rabbis so they would have a hardcore Kabbalistic faith. Now we're going to talk about Moses Hess. Most of you have never heard about Moses Hess. He was another Jewish Kabbalist. He lived from 1812 to 1875. Moses Hess used Jacob Frank's Kabbalistic teaching, and he is a forerunner to Karl Marx, who wrote the Communist Manifesto and was a founder of the communism. Moses Hess also wrote about the Zionistic movement and said, we have to get Palestine back. We have to restore the land. We have to rebuild the kingdom of Israel. So Moses Hess was a very even man, and he was a precursor. He was also training Karl Marx that most people know, if you have somewhat education, as a father of communism, but actually goes back to Moses Hess. 
Karl Marx was a capitalistic Jew. Now, let me shoot this to you. After Sabbatai Sivar had converted to Islam, Nathan said, if you want to serve God, convert to the religions in the countries you are living in. So Jews in Poland became Catholics. Jews in Northern Germany became Lutherans. And Jews living in the Arab countries became Muslims. The Saudi family, the Saudi family is a Jewish Kabbalistic family, crypto Jews. And we also had in Greece, what they call the Derma Jews. These were Jews that converted to Islam. And so Uncle Clementine wrote the so-called Balfour Declaration, a letter from Arthur Balfour to Lyle Walter Rothschild. This was not a government issued declaration. It was a letter from the foreign secretary to a Rothschild, the second Baron Rothschild, a leader of the British Jews. And they now said the British government is recognizing Zionism and pledging British aid for the Zionist effort to establish a home for world Jewry in Palestine. Let me read to you now the text of the Balfour Declaration. This is the copy. You can actually see this. You can Google this. You can find out what I'm telling you is exactly what it was. Here's what it said. Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you, on behalf of his Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which have been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious right of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Signed, Arthur J. Balfour. Now, you hear Christian Zionists talk about the Balfour Declaration, you know, they have a legal right and so on. Well, here's the deal. The war was still going on when this was written. The Ottoman Empire was still standing. And here, the British cabinet to the government there, under the prime minister, issued a declaration saying that we are in sympathy with the Zionist desire to have a homeland in Palestine. Was that legal? Did they ask any other country? Did he ask the people living in Palestine? Of course not. So this is a document that has been grabbed at talked about over the years, and if you go and ask any Christian Zionist, can you tell me what is a Balfour document? Do you know what it says? They have not the foggiest idea. They are just repeating what they heard, and if they heard it, it must be true. As we go on now, I told you about in the program that the land covenant is broken, and the people do not have the legal right to the land. Let me take you up now to World War I itself. The Arabs were double-crossed. How many of you have heard about Lawrence of Arabia? He was a British intelligence officer. Lawrence of Arabia promised the Arabs, these were people living in Saudi Arabia, they lived in Syria, they lived in uh, Jordan, Iraq, and Iran, the people there wanted to get rid of the Ottoman Empire. They wanted independence. So the British said, look, 
You fight for us. And when the war is won, you will get your land back and you will become independent. Well, they believed that. In Lawrence of Arabia, they made a movie about him. He had a legion of Arab fighters on camels. And they did havoc with the Ottoman Empire soldiers. They simply believed that now we will have our countries back. So what happened? The war was over. And now there was two people. We had Sir Mark Sykes from England and Georges Picot from France. And I'm sure that some of you heard about the Sykes-Picot agreement. Listen to this. The two leading diplomats in these negotiations were Sir Mark Sykes from England and Georges Picot from France. A secret agreement was signed on April 26, 1916, two years before the war ended. Instead of giving the Arabs independence, Lebanon and Syria would come under French protection. England would be the sovereign over the port city of Haifa and the crusader city of Acre. This controlling the bay that would serve as a Mediterranean terminal to oil pipelines coming from Mesopotamia, now known as Iraq. Palestine would be under the triple protection of Britain, France, and Russia. An Arab state under British protection would go from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea. Iraq was divided up between France and England. Northern Iraq, with its provincial capital Mosul, which they're fighting in now, would go to the French, while the British would take the rest of Iraq from Baghdad in the north to the Persian Gulf in the south. Now, this guy, Sykes and Picot, simply drew up a plan, which was accepted by the British government and the French government, and simply said this, we're going to carve up the Ottoman Empire into these countries, and they're going to be colonies. Notice now, America was not part of this. This is a division up between England and France. They helped themselves. Do you understand now what the people in Iraq, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, you understand what I hate the West? They know what happened. But of course, in the Western world, in our countries here, in the United States, Canada, Western Europe, we are not taught this in a public school. We simply say those nasty Arabs, they always have a rebellion. Why don't they just shut up and sit down? Well, the country got stolen from them. This is a broken treaty that took place. The League of Nations was formed. That was taking control of the things. There's a forerunner to the United Nations. And then we have the beginning now of the World Zionist Organization, Powerwise. Let me just read this to you here now. As I stated time and time again, the majority of the German Jews had no intention of leaving Germany, for they loved living in Germany as were deeply integrated into German society. They owned factories, banks, business, they held positions in the educational system, whereas the judges had turned into officers in German armed forces. By the way, Hitler had Jewish soldiers. Another book, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers, written by a Jew, and they were about a couple of hundred thousand of half-Jews, half-Germans, that the Nazis says, okay, we need you. We're going to clean you up. You are Aryan. You can serve. A lot of stuff went on behind the scenes. The same held true with Jews living in other nations in Western Europe. British Jews were well established in England. They had no desire to pick up belongings and move to Palestine. American Jews worked hard to attain the American dream. They were not going. And so they had to use poor Jews from the East, unless they could simply force Jews from Germany, France, Holland to go to Israel. That's what we had, the Holocaust. Hitler hated Jews. By the way, Hitler's 
was half Jewish. And most of the Nazi leadership were Kabbalistic Jews. It is such a mess. It is so entwined that it's hard for people to wrap their minds around it and realize that World War II was fought to establish the state of Israel. Now, who are some of these people that were working here among them? We had, for example, uh, Golda Meir. Her real name was Golda Mabovich, a Russian Jew, and she eventually became the prime minister of Israel. Menachem Begin, Ben-Gurion, and hundreds of others were Zionists, and they were also communists, socialists, and they fought hard in, in secrecy. There's a lot of blood on their hands. Let me talk about an organization I call BIDAR, or Trumpledor. This is an organization which has played a major role in bringing Jews to Palestine, but is almost unknown to the Christian community. Beter forces have been fighting on a number of fronts in Russia, and it was Beter forces who mopped up the resistance at the short-lived revolt in Russia in October 1993. You might not remember that. There was a revolt in 1993 as Russia was breaking loose. And the forces that killed mercilessly were beater forces. Now, Boris Yeltsin took over the parliament building in Moscow. Troops loyal to Yeltsin put down a revolt. But it was beater forces who went from floor to floor in a parliament building, taking no prisoners, but simply killing anyone who had taken part in the revolt. When the fighters against Yeltsin realized that beater forces were loose in the building, they streamed out of the building and surrendered to the regular Russian army. Beater forces are deeply respected and feared in all former communist nations. This is a secret army that very few people know about. But if you lived in the communist countries of the East, you know them, and you know they were ruthless. Beta was founded in 1923 in the city of Riga, capital of Latvia, one of the three Baltic nations, by Vladimir Jabotinsky. Originally, it was a revisionist youth movement, but later was developed into a paramilitary organization, and Jabotinsky named the organization after the late Russian Jew, Joseph Trumpeldor who lived from 1880 to 1920, who had been a soldier officer in the Russian Imperial Army. He attended the first Zionist Congress in 1897, returned to Russia, founding a Zionist society in Pyatigorsk. In 1902, he was drafted in the Russian Army. His units of action at Port Arthur, just north of Manchuria, between 1904 or 5, as the Japanese army attacked the Russian-held seaport. Now, let's go back here. In 1911, Trumpeldor had met with like-minded revolutionaries. A group of 16 men moved to Palestine, tried to set up a collective farm, but they didn't have the finance. The group broke up in 1913 after severe infighting. Trumpeldor attended the 11th Zionist Congress and then traveled to Russia to promote the Jewish National Fund and speak at meetings for Jews and entice them to move to Palestine, or as it is known, Aliyah. He then returned to Palestine and worked in agricultural labor. When the war broke out in 1914, the Turkish government expelled him from Egypt. It was there that he met Jabotinsky and Pinas Rutenberg, a Russian Jew born in 1879. And the three men discussed the idea of forming a fighting unit of Jews to join the British army. Trumpeldor joined a Jewish unit called Zion Mule Courts, which was actually in Gallipoli, a city in the European part of Turkey, south of Istanbul, 
where the British forces suffered defeat and were evacuated. As we go down here in this particular list here, I'm not going to take any more time on Trumpador. But anyway, the Zionist movement is extremely, extremely militant, and they are ruthless. How did they really do things later on? Well, we had several organizations. We had the Haganah, and uh, we had another organization that was fighting the British in Palestine after World War One and up to World War II. The Haganah and the Stern Gang. That's what it's called, the Stern, S-T-E-R-N Gang. These were the two military groups that later were the foundation of the Israeli army. And, of course, then we had the Mossad grew out of this, an intelligence service. They had an intelligence service for a long time. So, in closing down this particular version here and now about the Jews and the land, what I want to share with you, what I want you to take home is this. These Kabbalistic Jews, simply say this, we will do it ourselves. We're not going to wait for God. According to the Kabbalah, if they can make the whole world evil, every person evil, then the Holy Serpent would come up from the abyss and will be the Jewish Messiah and start and establish the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. That's what they're waiting for. These people are ruthless and they do know this. It might not happen in my lifetime, but I'm part of a movement. And so they don't care if they die and the job is not done yet. They know this. Our sons, our daughters will continue. And someday we will have our Messiah in Jerusalem sitting in a temple and we will rule the world. That's their goal. They are very strong about it. They are very dedicated to it. They were killed for that particular reason. And this is what's behind the Zionist movement among the Jewish people. Not all Jews are Zionist. Probably millions of Jews that say we, have, we want nothing to do with a Zionist movement. But the Zionists, they have the media, they have the money, and the other people do not have the media, so they cannot make their voices heard just like in any other country. What can you and I do now? Christian Zionist, what does that mean? It simply means that you are working to make sure that the Antichrist will take power in Israel. By the way, I want to stop here just to say this to your name. You're giving out a lot of statistics here. You know, I can't remember all of this. Well, here, here's what we got. I have a magazine called The Dove. The last one we did was 2004. We published this from 1990. This is when we really got into things. And I have what we call the Dev Collection. I have quite a bit what I'm speaking about here now in the magazine, the Dev. These are eight and a half by 11. They're almost like books. And we call them the Dev Collection. If you says, well, I want to be educated, then you can order the Dev Collection from us. It's $47.50. Go on our website and simply say, I want to buy the Dev Collection, and you will have that. Also, we have the Kabbalah book series that you can order. So between the book on the history of the Jews, the Dev Collection, and the Kabbalah, you will have the information all the years that I've researched. You can have and you can study this in two, three months and learn what it took me 25 years to learn. Another thing is this. If you know that something exists, you can go on the web and you can Google it and you can find out, you can verify everything I did. You got to remember now, most of my stuff was written 
before we had the internet. So I had to do basic research through books, documentation from people sending me in and so on. And when I now go on Google and I Google things to look things up, I'm amazed that what I spoke about in the 1980s and 1990s is verified. It's right there on the internet. You find it. And so it's exciting. So I will say this. If you want to be a good student, you want to know what's going on, these are the things that I suggest that you get a hold of. Well, there was a lot of information covered today, and I do have John's website linked and those resources that he recommends are linked there in the description. Go to eaec.org. That's John Terrell's website, eaec.org. And thank you so much for coming on the program and laying this all out, John. Very timely indeed. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you for having me. Wow, what a lot of information. Hey, folks, I want to hear back from you on this. A lot of information. I hope you had your notebooks. Hope you took notes. And I hope you looked up the scriptures. And I hope now you have a context to draw from. I think this is facts that all Christians should know about Israel. Go to my website, Sheila.media, S-H-E-I-L-A dot media. Shoot me an email and let us know what you thought of the program. We're out of time. We ran over. We'll see you soon. Good night and God bless.